We're going to continue our study of Revelation together this morning. So, Revelation chapter 6. We have been looking at this vision that John the Apostle received from Christ. And we have gotten into the judgments as Christ opens the seals of the book that we read about in chapter 5. Christ being the only one in all of the universe who is worthy to open those seals because he is not only the Savior, but he is also the judge. And so as we read chapter 6, we started this last week. I gave you kind of an introduction to it. But this morning we're going to get into these seals as Christ opens the seals of this book and see what each of these seals are. So let's read chapter 6 in Revelation together, starting at verse 1. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him. And he went forth conquering and to conquer. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And I beheld, and lo, a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny. And see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And his name that sat on him was Death, and Hell follow after him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth, to kill with the sword and with hunger and with death, and with the beasts of the earth. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God, and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them. And it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season, until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks and the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of wrath is come. And who shall be able to stand? Let's take a minute and pray before we get into our message. Lord, thank you again that you've given us your word. And we do thank you and praise you that we know everything in it is truth. And we can believe it. We can take it as fact. And so, Lord, as we look into this book of Revelation today in this chapter that talks about the seals, Lord, open our eyes and our understanding to the things that you want us to see here. Lord, there's many warnings for us, even in this day, that we should be faithful, that we should continue to trust you and to be following you in our lives. But there's hope as well that we are going to be spared the true judgment, the the great wrath of the Lord to come if we but follow you, if we trust you. And so, Lord, I pray that as we look at this book today, I pray that you would just give us the lessons that you want us to learn. Lord, may your spirit teach each one of us today, illumine our hearts and minds with the truth. And Lord, just use me as I speak as your instrument and as your mouthpiece. Lord, I need your help, and I need your power and your your wisdom and your spirit to be 
to fill me and to use me as your instrument today. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just accomplish the work that you have for us and in us during this time. And we give it to you. We give ourselves to you. And we thank you for what you're going to do. And now we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come back to Revelation chapter 6, um, what we see here in the seals, as Christ opens these seals, remember this, these are the seven seals of the scroll that we saw in chapter 5 that Christ took from the hand of God who sits on the throne. And Christ, again, being the only one who is worthy, is the judge now who is opening these seals. And as each seal is opened, the judgment of God is poured out upon the earth. And in these seals, what we see are a summary of the things that will take place when God pours out his wrath on the earth in the, in the end time, in the tribulation. The church at this point, I just want to remind you, is already gone. We saw that in chapter 4. Chapter 4 is not the rapture of the church, but it's, it's uh, John seeing the open door into heaven. And as he goes there, he sees the, the cherubim, the four living beings, worshiping. He sees the 24 elders, that's representative of the church, worshiping before the, the throne of God. And so the church is in heaven. And as we embark on chapter 6, we're in the tribulation period. That's what this is talking about, the judgments of God that will be poured out during the tribulation period. And here we have six of the seven seals in chapter 6. The first four seals that we're going to read about today are what are commonly referred to as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. They are the judgment of God that is poured out upon the earth in the first half of the tribulation. So that first three and a half years is when these four things will occur. And then the fifth seal, when we get down to that, is about the souls of the martyrs under the altar. That is the seal that stretches from the first half of the tribulation to the second half. And they're told, just wait. You know, don't worry about it. There are more people that have to die. There are more things that have to happen. Just be patient, and judgment will, will be uh, brought and avenged against, your, against the, the sins of taking your life. So that's the fifth seal. And then the last two seals take place in the second half of the tribulation. The three and a half years at the end of that period, that's known as the Great Tribulation. Okay? So it's during this this uh, seven-year period, the last seven years of human and satanic rule on the earth, that human beings will experience the most extreme evil and the most extreme suffering that anyone has ever seen or endured on this earth throughout history. Now, J. Vernon McGee points out five reasons why the suffering, why judgment is going to be so bad during that time period. Um, he says, number one, the Holy Spirit will not restrain evil any longer. And we read that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 through 10. If you want to turn there, it's, a, it's kind of a lengthy passage, but I want you to see this, because during the tribulation, it's not that the Holy Spirit will be completely removed. We know that because people will still be saved. And that is the Holy Spirit's work in, in people's hearts, to convict them of sin, to bring them to Christ and to baptize them into Christ. So the Holy Spirit won't be removed from the earth, but his restraint will be taken away. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter three, or chapter 2, I'm sorry, verses 3 through 10, Paul describes that. And he says this, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. Talking about the end time. And the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction. That's talking about the Antichrist who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. And Paul's referring to the Holy Spirit's restraint here, not just on the Antichrist, but on, the, on Satan's power. Verse 7 says, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. There's the removal of the Holy Spirit's restraint. At the end time, 
when the, whole, when the Antichrist makes himself known. And in verse 8, Then that lawlessness, lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth, and bring, an end to, uh, bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of truth so as to be saved. So Paul describes the taking away of the restraint of the Holy Spirit here. And it's going to happen during this period of the tribulation when the Antichrist is made known. Made known. So that is the first reason why it's going to be so bad on the earth during the tribulation. J. Vernon McGee also says this. Number two, the true church, as light and salt, will be gone from the earth. So in other words, our influence will be removed. Now, we don't have a great influence in the earth, unfortunately, today. The church has not done its job, has not been faithful as a whole in showing Christ to the earth. But the influence we do have will be gone, because the church will be gone. Now, all you have to do is look at our government right now. You look at some of the debates that are happening in the Senate and in Congress, and there are men who are still standing up, or at least trying to stand up, for justice and for righteousness. And they're fighting against these forces of evil that are in our government. Unfortunately, we don't see a lot of headway being made, but the restraint is still there. The influence is still there. In the tribulation, that's going to be gone because the church is gone. Number three, the devil knows he only has a short time left. And believe me, when the Holy Spirit's restraint and the church is taken out of the the earth during those seven years, Satan is going to see it as a free-for-all, and he is going to go all out like no one has ever seen before. He is still, again, under the restraint of the Holy Spirit. But in those days, he knows, okay, I have seven years left. I'm going to do everything I can to take down mankind. Number four, evil men will be free to carry out the nefarious plans. Again, because the restraint of the Holy Spirit has been taken out, the church has been taken out. Look around. All of the evilness that's in the heart of man will come to bloom during the tribulation. And God will actually use that evil in the heart of men and the unrestrained uh, work of Satan to accomplish his judgment. But it's going to be bad because it's going to be man at his worst, literally, during those seven years. And then he says the number five reason is because there will be direct judgment from God. Now, it's not going to be just the evil of Satan and the evil of mankind that God uses in his judgment. There's going to be a lot of even natural disasters and other things that are not from man or not from Satan. They're going to be God's direct judgment on the earth like he has never poured out before. So when you take all those things and compound them together, you can see that that's going to be the worst time ever to be alive on the earth is during those seven years of judgment. You're not going to want to be here. And God has given us a way to avoid that. If we trust Christ now, if we become part of the church in faith, then at the rapture, we're going to be taken up. We will miss that judgment on the earth, but we will also miss the eternal judgment in hell, which is worse. Okay, if we're getting, want to get saved just so that we can avoid the tribulation, wrong motivation. Okay, obviously, we don't want to be here, but... The alternative, being with God in heaven, is the motivation, okay? So, and we know it's going to be bad. Now, we've already seen the exalted Jesus Christ as the supreme judge in chapters 1 and chapter 5 of Revelation. When John saw the exalted Christ standing before him in chapter 1, he didn't see necessarily the shepherd. He didn't see that meek and lowly servant that Christ was on earth. This was the exalted Christ who was in a position now to judge. And we're looking at the time of the tribulation. The church is in heaven, remember? And so Christ is no longer the high priest seated at the throne of God, interceding for us. We're in heaven now. So now he becomes the judge of evil and the judge of the earth. And that's the picture that we have in Revelation of Jesus Christ. And he's the one that's opening these seals that reveal this series of judgments that will make up all of God's wrath that's going to be poured out As he reclaims the title deed to the earth, that's the scroll from the great usurper, Satan, who has taken it through sin unrighteously and unjustly and now is the prince of the power of the air, the prince of this world, 
until this judgment is finished and Satan is bound for a thousand years. So this is Christ reclaiming the earth. And it's during these seven years that judgment is poured out in that reclamation. And then at the end of the seven years, Christ sets up his kingdom as the king of the earth, literally, and which we know as the millennial kingdom, a thousand years directly under the rule of Christ, in which basically everything will be, I'm not going to say perfect, because sin will still be in the heart of mankind, but it'll be close, all right? And that's what we're looking forward to. But in these judgments, we see in these seals, each of these seals represents a power or a force that God uses in the earth to, to uh, pour his judgment or to exact his judgment on the earth. Now, again, I said the first six of these seals we see here in chapter 6. When we get to chapter 7, we're going to see a pause. It's the pause between the sixth and seventh seal, and it talks about those people who are going to be delivered, not physically from the judgment on the earth, but spiritually, those people who are going to be delivered from the eternal judgment during the tribulation. We'll call them tribulation saints. It also includes the 144,000 witnesses you see in chapter 7. And then when you hit chapter 8, the seventh seal is open. And then from chapter 8 all the way through the end of chapter 18 is the extent of the seventh seal, because in the seventh seal then we also have seven trumpet judgments carried out by the angels of God, and then seven bowl judgments that are poured out by God himself on the earth. And so that's the book of Revelation all the way up to chapter 18. And that's what we're beginning here today. What's interesting that as we study these seals, in some of them, we will see literally the evil of mankind being manifest. And God uses that evil to accomplish his work of judgment. Now, that's nothing new. We've seen that throughout history. We we can read about it in the Bible. We know he's done this with his people Israel in the past. Uh, For instance, uh, God calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant, He ordained Nebuchadnezzar to come and bring havoc upon Israel to disperse them, to destroy the temple, to take them captive. That was God's judgment, and he used Nebuchadnezzar in Jeremiah chapter 27, verse 6. This is God speaking. He says, And now have I given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and the beasts of the field have I given him also to serve him. So God used even the evil of Nebuchadnezzar, an ungodly man at that point in his life, to exact judgment upon his people. In Isaiah chapter 45, verse 1, God calls Cyrus, the king of Persia, his anointed one. That means he was anointed for a specific purpose in God's plan. And he says, thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held to subdue the nations before him and loose the armor of kings to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. So we see God uses even the evil of mankind to accomplish his judgment in the lives of mankind. that, That speaks to the sovereignty of God. Now, people who talk about the sovereignty of God and then say, well, God ordains, God makes everything happen the way it's supposed to happen. He doesn't make it happen that way, okay? God is not the author of sin, but God is is all-knowing, and he has foreknowledge. And so he looks at mankind, he's made mankind, he didn't make us to sin, but he gave us that free will in which we chose to sin, But the real sovereignty of God is seen then in the fact that even as we choose to sin and rebel against God, he can still use that to accomplish his purpose. And we see that even here in the seven seals and the judgments that God exacts on the earth in Revelation, because a lot of these judgments are focused in on the evil that man is perpetuating, especially the Antichrist and what he does on the earth. And that is part of God's judgment. I mean, we look at our government today, and I've heard people say, and I believe this, that the things that we're experiencing today and the evil that we see in our government and in our society is God's judgment upon our country because we've abandoned him for all practical purposes and everything. And so God uses evil to accomplish his judgment on earth. He didn't make it happen. He didn't, he's not the author of sin, but he can still use it. And so we'll see that in some of these seals. 
Now, as we go through these seals, I'm going to give you this preface. This point in Revelation chapter 6, as, we, as these seals are opened, is not the first time that these seals are talked about or these judgments are talked about in Scripture. Who's the one opening the seals? Jesus Christ. He's the judge. But Jesus actually delineated and listed many of these judgments while he was on earth before he died. And we're going to reference Matthew 24. And Matthew 24 is a key chapter to understanding Revelation because Christ talks about and explains things in Matthew chapter 24 that perfectly coincide with, Matthew, with the Revelation and the things that happen in Revelation. Matthew 24 starts out like this. Jesus is talking about the temple being destroyed and about one stone not being left upon another. That happens in, the, in verse 1 and 2. And then in verse 3, his disciples ask him, and they say, Tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? So the disciples have this question. Okay, when's the temple going to be destroyed? When are, when are these things going to happen? And we know the end of the age is going to happen. Now, the disciples were short-sighted in their thinking. They're thinking, when the temple's destroyed, that's the end of everything, and that's when Christ is going to set up his kingdom. They didn't get the fact of all of the benefit of Daniel's prophecy that we understand today. They had it, but they didn't quite put all the pieces together, in that there's going to be a long period of time from the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. to this 70th week that we know as the church age. Okay, And they thought, well, Christ is talking about the temple being destroyed, and so what are, we, what are the signs we're looking for? But Christ then starts to delineate his answer in answering when this end of the age is going to take place. And the things that he outlines in the rest of the chapter 24 of Matthew is a description of the things that will happen, some of them in the next 40 years, for the disciples, up leading from about 30 A.D. to 70 A.D., when the temple was destroyed by Rome. But ultimately, what he describes in, in um, Matthew 24 is what's going to happen during the tribulation and leading up to him setting up his kingdom on earth. So what Christ isn't, was talking about in Matthew 24, and this is where some people get confused, is not the things that lead up to the rapture. Because I want you to remember the disciples' perspective. The disciples are Jews. Jesus' teaching in the New Testament is directly to Jews. Now, it applies to us as Christians, but most of the time when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, he's talking about the millennial kingdom. And so he's looking forward with the disciples, trying to help them understand the culmination of this period or this age of the earth is going to happen at the millennial kingdom. That's when Christ sets up his kingdom on earth. And so all of what he talks about in chapter, four of, of, uh, chapter 24 of Matthew is in relation to what's going to happen just before he sets up his kingdom, which is the seven years of tribulation. Okay? And you're going to see that as we go through these seals. So with all of that introduction, and I guess my introduction was a little longer than I thought, but with all of that, now we look at these seals and we'll go through them one by one. So in, in chapter 6 of Revelation... We have the first seal, which we looked at briefly last week, this false peace that is ushered in with the Antichrist. And this is in uh, verse 1, he says, And when I saw the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts, saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Now, just as a reminder and as kind of review for us, the noise of thunder here, usually get thunder before the storm, right? There it is. But we've seen the noise of thunder before in Revelation. We see it throughout Scripture as referencing the voice of God. And God is declaring judgment. That's this voice of thunder or the noise of thunder. And again, at the end of the verse, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. In the original manuscripts, the words and see are not there. What He's not talking to John and saying, hey, come here and look at this. I've got to show you this. John's standing there watching this happen. 
God has given him this vision. There's no reason for him to come and see. What the angel is proclaiming here is proclaiming for the judgment of God to come forth. That's what the word here means in the Greek, to come forth. And so the angel isn't talking to John. He's talking, if in a sense, to the horseman or to the seal, the judgment of the seal that is going to come forth. And the first one comes in verse 2. I saw and beheld a white horse. He that sat on him had a bow. And a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. So we see this false peace signified by the bow with no arrows. Okay? The Antichrist coming in with peace to the world. He brings a peace treaty to Israel for seven years. Daniel tells us that in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. He makes a, a false peace treaty. But to Israel, it's a peace treaty. To Israel, he is their Messiah. He's the one that's going to come and protect them against all the evil of the world. It's going to restore the kingdom. And that's why he's called the Antichrist, because they think he is Christ. He's the Messiah, but he's an imposter. Also, with this peace or false peace that the world will be searching for is this. Think about what just happened before this happens, the rapture of the church. So on the earth, millions of people are all of a sudden missing and no one has any explanation. And the Antichrist has the answer. Now, I don't know what that answer is going to be. If you look around in our culture, it seems like we're being conditioned more and more through Hollywood, through philosophy, that the answer is going to be aliens took us. I mean, that, that seems to be the answer. Now, look how many movies are made about extraterrestrial, about alien life, okay? And the philosophy of people anymore, you know, and the things in science even. Is there life on Mars? Is there life out there? Well, they're going to point to the rapture. They're going to go, see, we told you. There's the evidence. They took all these people from the earth, okay? But that's going to be a time of chaos right after the rapture. All of a sudden, millions of people missing without explanation. And somebody is going to have to give answers. And the Antichrist is the one who brings peace back to culture and to society in answering these questions. Now, it's not true what he says because he's the Antichrist and not Christ. But it gives the world a sense of peace. It's a false peace. And he will be looked at then as, in a sense, the savior of the world because now he's brought peace back to a, a world in chaos. Now, we've heard that applied to other people, okay? When Hitler first came to power, there were people in Germany that referred to him as a savior or a messiah. Even in our country, uh, Barack Obama, when he was elected, there were people that were referring to him as America's messiah, okay? And Christ tells us, as we get to the end of time, there are many antichrists, that will come, that will show themselves many false teachers who will lead people astray into believing the lie. And Antichrist is the ultimate. He's, the, he's the, 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 the pinnacle of that heap. And here he brings a false Christ or a false peace into the world. Now, that's the bow, but no arrows, signifying a mostly peaceful ascent to power. He's given a victor's crown. That word crown there is Stephanos in the Greek. It means a uh, crown that they give to someone who just accomplished a great feat or won a battle or won an event was the crown that they gave to uh, an athlete as they won their event. Okay, but it was a wreath, basically. But it's a victor's crown. It's not what's called a diadem. The difference between this Stephanos, the victor's crown, and a diadem, a diadem is a royal crown, and the only one that will wear a royal crown is Jesus Christ because he is the only real king. And so that's the difference here. He has this crown. It's a victor's crown, but it's not going to be a reigning crown because he won't truly reign over the earth as Christ will. So with this rise of Antichrist, we have ushered in a short period of worldwide peace. That's what we see in the first seal. And we think, well, how is that judgment? We looked at that last week, how it, the false peace, it gives a false sense of security. And what happens when you have a false peace? It falls apart. It doesn't last. And look at the second seal. In verse 3, 
It tells us the second seal. When he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. Didn't last long. It's not going to last long because it's false peace. You can't have a long-lasting false peace. And in the tribulation period, the Antichrist may promise peace. He might have peace treaties, but it will not last very long because it's not real. And here we see the second seal. So right on the heels of this peace treaty and this so-called Savior who has all the answers to all the world's problems, we have war. That's this red color. The second horseman is this red horseman, the red representing war. Not, not any sooner than everybody thinks that everything is going to be okay, and war breaks out. It says he takes peace. He's given the power to take peace away. Where does that power come from? The Prince of Peace, from Christ. So Christ literally gives whoever is in charge, but the, the force, this power, to take peace from the earth. Now, this is not the Antichrist necessarily that is taking peace from the earth. He's trying to provide peace, remember? He's doing it the wrong way, but he's trying to bring peace to the earth. But if you go back to the book of Daniel, and we studied this in Daniel chapter 11 just a few weeks ago, the second half of that chapter talks about the, the wars that will break out when the Antichrist comes to power. And it talks, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time reading it. We talked about it in, in Bible study on Wednesday night a couple weeks ago. But it talks about the kings of the north and the kings of the south coming against the Antichrist. Now, this is what happens when you have a dictator. There are always people who don't like the fact that only one person is in charge. That's been the course of history throughout the history of our earth. Whenever you have a dictator, there are people who will rebel against him. And that's what will happen with the Antichrist. Now, he has set up a peace treaty with Israel. And there are nations that we know even today, who do not like Israel for one reason or another. Okay? The Arab nations, the Islamic nations especially, they just want to get rid of Israel because they are the children of promise. Arabs descended from Ishmael, who was the other son of Abraham, who they claim was the rightful son because he was the firstborn. That's why there's been contention between Islam and Israel for all of history. Okay? But there's also other nations who really don't care about the religion part of it. All they want is the economic part of it. You look at how Israel has prospered, how much they have advanced in their science, in their medicine, in their literature, in every way, because God promised to bless them, and they want part of that. And so they're going to be gunning to go against Israel and get whatever they can anyway. So there's going to be nations from the north, from the south, eventually from the east as well. That will come against Israel. But remember, the Antichrist has made a peace treaty with them. And so the Antichrist is actually going to defend Israel at the beginning of the tribulation, but so much for peace. Now all of a sudden we have these countries raising up war against the Antichrist and against Israel. And that's the second seal, the war that breaks out. But I want you to consider it from the modern-day perspective, okay? Apart from those nations that are going to start war that we know of from Daniel chapter 11, look at what's going on in our culture today, okay? How much peace really is there? I mean, that was one of the promises of probably every president that we've had since the world wars. We're going to bring peace. I mean, George Washington was our first president, and that was at the end of a war to bring peace to our country. And how many of them actually have accomplished that? People can't give peace. We saw that last week. But in our society, we have all this stuff going on today, and it's not just political protests. It's cultural protests. It's you know equality protests. All of this stuff in the name of, of justice or equality. I mean, if you live in Portland, you don't want to live in Portland right now. Okay, they've had violence and, and protests going on for months. And it didn't end with the election. It wasn't about the election. Okay? 
And that's what happens when you have a situation where people in the world are sinful and they want their own agenda, whether they're in leadership or not. Now, you know, I'm not going to talk about how these people are being stirred up by the government or by agencies. Okay, the fact is it's happening. And look at what they're protesting for. It's against people who are for, or I'm sorry, it's, it's for, uh, against people who are against abortion. It's against people who are so-called racist. It's against people who are against whatever they think is right. And you may have a different opinion, but that makes you a racist or wrong or, or bad in some way, and so they're going to protest. And their protests are not just, as we've seen in the news, not just destruction of property, standing there chanting with you know, lights and, all, and fireworks and all the rest of it. They have killed people. And you think it's going to get any better in the tribulation? So we're not just talking about war here. We're talking about violence in general in the culture. Again, because when one guy's in charge, there's a lot of people who don't like that. There's going to be rebels that stand up. And when we have a one-world government, as we know we will in the tribulation period, that when that exists, then it will empower the agents of that government and the proponents of that government to stir up protests and violence against their enemies, not just on a military level, but on a, a social citizenry level. This has happened in history before. When Hitler was taking over Germany, he raised up his own army of what he called brown shirts. And they were there to to look out for people who were against him, to literally instigate protests and violence against those people, to coerce them into submission and cooperation. Okay, that was part of his tactic. It happened in China. It happened in Russia, where they coerced citizens who were against the government. Either you, you agree and you submit or you die. Okay? That's the way it works. And in fact, in our, state, in our country today, we have several states who are using neighborhood tracing programs to identify possible COVID infectors who won't submit to lockdown measures. And this started a year ago. Okay? They put this program into place where states literally advocated for people to volunteer to turn in their neighbors because, oh, you met here and you went here, and so you must be an infector or a spreader. And they're, they're basically reporting on their neighbors to the government saying that's what these people are doing. In our current gun laws that are being proposed, we have legislatures who want family members and neighbors to kind of narc on their family members and neighbors Oh, well, I don't think this person is capable mentally of having a gun because he's against abortion or because he believes in God. He must be mentally insane. So the stage is already set for this, even in our country today. This is not something that's just out of the realm of possibility. We've seen it happen. We see it happening. It's going to happen. And so when God talks about this war and the turmoil that's going to happen in this second seal, you can see all the realm of possibilities that fall under that. It's not going to be a peaceful time. But this destroys the peace. And you can see how easily peace can be taken away and all of a sudden go from a sense of peace to a total uh, condition of pandemonium and chaos. That's the Great Tribulation. Okay, that's this period of seven years that's called the tribulation. The end of verse 4, he describes it like this. He says, there was given unto him a great sword. Now, the word sword there is the Greek word makaira, and that is the short, double-edged broadsword that was used by Roman soldiers. They were very effective at using that. In fact, it gave them a distinct advantage in battle, in hand-to-hand combat. It was, it was uh, a short sword used for stabbing. But it was also the tool of choice for assassins because it could be concealed and it was very effective at killing people very quickly. And so even in this Machaira that he says there was given unto him a great sword, political assassinations, religious assassinations, that's going to be the name of the time. Okay, 
That's what we're, we're looking at in this second seal, in the time of the tribulation. Christ said it was going to be this way. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 6 and 7, this is what his answer to the, the disciples were when they said, what are going to be the signs of the end of the age right before you set up your kingdom? And Jesus says this in chapter, in chapter 24 of Matthew, verses 6 and 7, you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There's a description of the tribulation period. So much for peace. But that's what God gives us in this second seal. Jesus says the wars would come. And he also says, but that's not the end. There's a lot more that's going to happen. The wars are just the beginning. Okay? He gets down in Revelation 6. We get down to the third seal. And he says in verse 5, And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see, and I beheld a low, a black horse, and he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A a measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny, and see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. What does that sound like to you? What naturally follows war? Food shortage and famine. And that's exactly what we have in the third seal. The black horse, the color black, is associated with famine several times in Scripture. In Lamentations 5.10, Jeremiah the prophet is lamenting about the people looking as if they have black skin because of their hunger. There's several other references in the Old Testament. In in fact, way back in in, uh, the Pentateuch, in the first five books, there's a couple references to the blackness of famine. So this black horse represents famine. And it says he has a pair of balances in his hand. Balances were what they used to measure things in the Bible. Now we would use scales. We call it scales. It was the same thing. They would measure how much something weighed. Or in the marketplace, they would have a weight or what they called a measure that they knew how much that that ingot of metal or a rock or whatever, how much exactly that weighed. They would put that on one side and they would measure out the grain or whatever the person was buying until that balanced evened out. And then they knew, okay, I have exactly what I want. And here he says that this horse has a pair of balances in his hand. In Scripture, Leviticus 26 and Ezekiel 4, um, whenever bread is referred to as being sold by weight with a balance, it's connected with a famine, either present or coming. And that's what we have here. God gave a balance to measure out the food, which means famine. There's going to be a a shortage of food. And then in verse 6, it says there's a voice from the midst of the four beasts. Now, remember, the four beasts are the four cherubim. They are around the throne of God. So if the voice comes out from the midst of the four beasts, where is it coming from? It has to be the throne of God. So this must be God speaking. It's authority. And the voice says, a measure of wheat sold for a penny, three measures of barley for a penny. The measure, as we have here in Revelation, is roughly equivalent to a quart in our measurement today. And it was the amount of food that was allotted a soldier for one day in the Roman army. Now you can see a lot of these references that, that uh, John is getting. He understands in reference to the situations of his day, and that's what this is. It's saying basically, here's how much food a soldier gets for one day, about a quart. That should sustain him for the entire day. And it says a measure of wheat sold for a penny. That means the wheat sold for a penny. So what you would get for one day was a penny. The other word for penny here is denarius. And if you read the scripture, you'll find out that denarius is actually a day's wage. So for one man working an entire day, he has enough money to buy food for himself for that day. That's what God is saying the conditions are going to be like here. Now that's wheat. Then he says three measures of barley for a penny. Or you can get the cheaper grain the stuff that's not as nutritional, usually used for cattle feed, you can buy three quarts of that for a penny. So for a whole day's work, a man can either buy just enough food for himself and forget about his family, 
or it can buy cheaper food that's not as nutritional to provide at least for his wife and one child. If you have four or more in your family, you're out of luck. But you see the shortage that God is talking about here. And inflation is going to be incredible. Normally, in Bible times, to buy a penny's worth would give you eight times, eight to 12 times as much. So you could buy enough food for yourself for more than a week with a penny, one day's wages. And God's saying inflation is going to be so high, you will hardly be able to afford food for yourself at all. Now, we don't work seven days a week. So what happens on Saturday and Sunday? You go hungry or you find work for those two days. And again, you're only supporting yourself or very poorly to other people. But you see the conditions that God is describing here is this famine and shortage of food. And that's what he says uh, the conditions are going to be like in the tribulation. But then he uses this phrase at the end of that verse, which is very interesting. He says, see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. Now, this one is tough because there's not a specific interpretation that all commentators and scholars agree on. I've gotten it down to two main ones, and here's the main interpretations of that phrase. Oil and wine were the staple components of what people used in addition to grain in their diet. Oil and wine were used for mixing bread, uh, for making stews and soups, and basically they were staples in cooking and just ingredients for recipes. Now we know that oil and wine were very abundant in the Holy Land. There's lots of olive trees, there were lots of grapevines, and that was a, a staple of Jewish society and of the Mideast culture. But God says, See thou hurt not the oil and the wine. The phrase here is, don't waste it, because there's not going to be as much available. Be very careful with it. You're still going to have it available, but in very small quantities. That's one interpretation. The other interpretation is this. In a famine, oil and wine were basically luxuries, because they wouldn't be available. If it was a true famine from a drought, the grapes would not have produced, the, the olive trees would not have produced as much, and therefore there would be very little oil and wine available. So who got it? The rich people? Now, again, think about in our history and in the situation that we know is going to be in the tribulation about a one-world government that is built on a communist system. Dictatorship is what it comes down to. Who is it that enjoys their rights and all the luxuries of life? The people at the top. The very few elite people at the top. And the rest of society, the commoners, go without. I mean, that has been a pattern in every communist country through history. We know that's going to be a pattern here as well in the tribulation. So that's a very possible explanation of that phrase. Common people, you're going to suffer with wheat and barley if you can get it. The elite on top running the show, they have whatever they want available to them. We know this is going to happen because we've already seen indications in our world that this is where people are moving, especially those people in charge. The United Nations has already published documentation about how their goal is to reduce world population. They want to concentrate whatever population is left in what they call 10 habitation zones. And then a lot, mandatory housing, food rations, transportation, and work assignments to all global citizens. That's the goal, published goal of the United Nations. I think it's going to be fulfilled by the Antichrist in the tribulation period. In that plan, here's how it works. All the normal people are going to be herded into these habitation zones. You're going to be assigned a job. You're going to be given public transportation to get back and forth. But those habitation zones only take up about 10% of the world's surface. 
The rest of the world, the 90%, they say they're going to let go back to nature. Here's the environmental part of it. We have corrupted nature. We're destroying our planet, and so we need to let nature retake over. That's their plan. But, of course, that means that the 90% of the earth and the resources of the world are going to be available to the elite people to enjoy, just not common people. There's the conditions of the Great Tribulation. Okay? And God refers to that right here, if you take that interpretation. We know that when war comes, as we've seen already in the second seal, a communist-style government, especially is when they're in charge of taking care of their people during war, who suffers? The people. Okay? The people in charge, I mean, they're necessary, right? The necessary people. We've already heard that. Okay? And this is what's going to happen in the tribulation. Food shortages and hunger following war, at least for the common people, which includes all of us. We're not going to be here, so I say us in the general term. But again, Christ predicted this in Matthew chapter 24. He says in verse 7, For nations shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines. Christ predicted it in Matthew 24, before he went to the cross. So what you see in chapter 24 of Matthew is all of these events literally unfolding in Christ's teaching. Almost exactly in the order that they occur. We get to the fourth seal this morning and we are at the pale horse in verse 7 and 8. Following the famine, when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked and beheld a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was death, and hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. The word pale here, or the color that's referred to, I think some uh, versions of the Bible use the word ashen, is actually the word uh, chloros in Greek. It's the word we get our word chlorophyll from, and we know that's a greenish color. So it's talking about a pale yellow-green color associated with death. And that's what this horseman is, the horseman of death. This force of death will now cover the earth. And if you look very closely, it says death. His name is death in verse uh, 8. His name that sat on him was death, and hell followed with him. So we know the horse is death, or this force that will come from God's judgment is death. And hell is attached to him. The word hell is actually not a great interpretation for English. It should be the word Hades. Hell is normally associated with the eternal punishment of the damned in the lake of fire. In the Jewish language and understanding, this word Hades was the place of the dead. It is the holding place of unbelieving souls until they are condemned to the lake of fire. But it's still a place of suffering. Okay, It's not like purgatory where you get to go there for a little while, put your time in, and then you get to go to heaven or paradise. Okay, This is the place of death. And when Christ comes eventually and destroys his enemies, and then finally at the end of the, trip, uh, at the, end of the millennial kingdom, casts Satan into the lake of fire then we have the great white throne judgment that will happen after that, and all unbelieving souls will also be cast into the lake of fire with him. And that will be the end. But this word here is Hades. And so he says, death and Hades. We know in Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, Christ says, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and death. Same words. So Christ is in control of this. But he unleashes death upon the earth as judgment. And it says, And power was given unto them over a fourth part of the earth. That doesn't mean a fourth part of the globe. It means a fourth part of the population. 25% of the people who are alive in this period are going to die in the first part of the tribulation. This is not the total that will die during that seven years. This is just in the first part because of war, because of famine, because of violence. That's the natural result. Now, right now, according to our sources, as of April 2021, our population on Earth is estimated at about 7.9 billion people. 
If nothing changes between now and the time Christ comes back to take his church and the tribulation begins, that means during that first three and a half years, almost two billion people will die. And you think we have a pandemic now. Okay, that's how bad it's going to be. And he says, here's how it's going to happen. To kill with sword and with hunger, with death, with beasts of the earth. We've already seen the sword. That's war and other violence. That was part of the second seal. We've already seen hunger. That's part of the third seal, the famine and the food shortage that's going to happen. But then he uses this word death. And actually, the word means pestilence, disease. Now, anytime you go back in history and you look at times of war and famine, you also have times of disease. Because when there's a shortage of food, disease comes with it, malnutrition and other things. Okay, whenever you have a time of war, basic necessities are also not available, including medical care, and disease runs rampant. Okay, it's happened all throughout history. In fact, there's a, st- a statistic that I found I was surprised at, but they estimate that more soldiers died in the Civil War of disease than of enemy ammunition because of the conditions that they had to endure on the battlefield and otherwise. Disease comes with war and famine, and it's going to be the same in the Great Tribulation. If you look at statistics today, the greatest source of death in our world is disease. People die from one or more kinds of diseases than of anything else. And so disease is going to be a great part of the death that's going to take place. The Greek word for death here is thanatos. It's a broad term which includes pestilence. That's the general term for it. But it also could mean disease or other what they would call natural causes. And that would be expanded to include things like earthquakes, tornadoes, volcanoes, hurricanes, natural disasters, what we would call the acts of God. And so God is pouring out his judgment in all these ways And almost 2 billion people will die because of it. But then the last phrase or the last way that people are going to die, it says the beasts of the earth. Now, remember, the beasts of the earth, the animals, are under God's control. So we shouldn't question this. As far as what this exactly means, I don't know. It could mean that in the tribulation, wild animals are just going to go wild. Okay, Animals that are afraid of humans will no longer be afraid of humans, and they'll start attacking humans more than they ever did. That's a very good possibility. And that would make perfect sense. God has used wild animals in his judgment in the past. We've read several instances in the Bible. There was a group of children who were making fun of Elijah the prophet, calling him my bald head, and God sent a bear out of the woods to eat him. Okay? God controls the animals. So if he uses animals, wild animals here, to kill people, that's not going to be a surprise. But if we just think logically... When you think of famine, when you think of war, when you think of the the conditions that the world will be in during this time period, what else does history remind us of as far as wild animals? How about rats? Rats were the culprit of the Black Plague back in the 14th century. The Black Plague has not been eradicated. Okay, I had a friend 20 years ago who in South Carolina was cleaning out from under his shed, and he knew there were rats under there, and he didn't have gloves on, and he had a cut on his hand, and he died from the Black Plague within a week. It's still there. Now, whether this is talking about rats, it's very possible. They're part of wild animals, are they not? And God controls them just like he controls every other animal. But it fits the scenario. Now, multiply rats in your world, and you have a very uncomfortable world apart from the disease that they bring. Okay, but God says all this is going to happen. This is going to be in contrast to the millennial kingdom just after the tribulation. Because in the millennial kingdom, and I want to dispel a myth here, because people will use this phrase to describe Christ's kingdom. This is going to be a time of peace, which it will be, When the lion lays down with a lamb. Have you heard that phrase before? The lion lays down with a lamb. That's not in the Bible, actually. 
Okay, let me read you the closest verse to that. It's in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6. This is the best we can get as far as that phrase is concerned. And this is talking about the millennial kingdom of Christ. But Isaiah the prophet says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. So if we're going to say the lion shall lay down with the lamb, we've kind of convoluted that verse a little bit. It's not a direct quote from Scripture. The principle is true, okay? Animals will not be killing each other because Christ is going to be in control. And therefore, real peace, even among the animal kingdom, will be the rule of Christ's kingdom. Not so in the tribulation. It'll be just the opposite, okay? But even though a fourth of the population is going to die because of all these things, this is not the end. Remember, we're still in the first half of the tribulation, the first three and a half years. Okay? Again, going back to Matthew chapter 24, verse 22. Jesus says this later in the chapter. He says, except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. He was saying that if the tribulation period extends beyond these seven years, basically mankind would wipe itself off the face of the earth through disease, war, famine, hunger, violence, wild beasts, you name it. And so Jesus says, well, because of the elect's sake, because of those who are going to believe during that period, God shortens it to seven years. Otherwise, everybody would be dead. That's how bad it's going to be. So God limits the amount of death that occurs in these seven years because he limits his time of judgment to seven years. If this kind of judgment was poured out for longer than that, there would be nobody left on the earth. But again, as we look at these seals, none of this should surprise us because if we read Matthew 24, Jesus already predicted this. Let me go back to verses 7 and 8 in Matthew chapter 24. And Jesus says this, For nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There's the wars. And there shall be famines and pestilence. There's the disease. And, and earthquakes. There's the natural disasters in diverse places. And then he says, All these are the beginning of sorrows. The beginning of the tribulation. So Jesus taught us exactly what would happen even before we get to Revelation. Revelation kind of describes really how bad it's going to be. But that's the judgment of God being poured out on the earth. Now, I'm going to have to stop there. We're not going to get to the fifth and sixth seals. Uh, otherwise, we'd be here till supper time, and I don't think anybody has their lunch with them right now. So... We're going to quit with the fourth seal, and this is actually a great place to quit for today because, again, these are the four judgments, the four horsemen of the apocalypse poured out at the beginning of the tribulation. As we get into the fifth seal next week, we'll be bridging that gap between the first and second halves, and then the sixth and seventh seal is the last half of the tribulation, which gets extremely bad. This is a birthday party compared to what's going to happen in the second half. Okay, I'm just going to give you that. So we'll stop there, and we'll come back to this next week. But I want to give you this hope, okay? We look at this stuff, and we see even, even signs of it in our world today. And, and I've said this to my wife. You know, sometimes I can't stand read the news. I can't believe how bad the world is getting and how much people just can't even understand truth anymore. Facts, Right? We've had people that say, don't confuse the truth with the facts. I thought they were the same thing. According to God, they are. But people will not accept truth today. But we have hope. Because God's still in control. Okay? That is the substance of our hope. You know, we read this morning in Psalm 91 that God is our refuge. I don't know how bad it's going to get before Christ comes back. All right, if he waits another 10 years, think about what's happened in our, in our country alone in the last 10 years and how bad that could escalate in the next 10 years and what we may have to suffer through. But the question is, in hope, are we going to keep being faithful? Are we going to keep trusting God? Are we going to keep being assured of the promise and say, like Romans, 1, uh, uh, Romans 8.28 says, 
I know that all things work together for good, no matter how bad it is on this earth, because God's still in control. He's in control of this, what we've seen today, and he's in control of our lives today, and there we find peace, as we mentioned last week. All right? So I'll leave you with that today. We'll quit here, and we'll pick up the fifth seal next week. So let's have a word of prayer this morning as we close. Father, again, we thank you for your word, and you've shown us many interesting and amazing things about your judgment, about what's going to be in the future, Lord. And again, we don't know what we're going to have to go through in our lifetime. We don't know when you're coming back, but help us to always be looking, to be ready, to be faithful in doing those things that you've called us to do. Lord, help us not to get discouraged by all of this, because your justice demands judgment. And you have given all mankind every opportunity to submit to the truth of your word and to submit to the Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that as you lead us and guide us day by day, help us not to lose sight of the one that we look upon, the one that we follow, and the one who is going to come back for us one day to give us a glorious eternity in heaven with you. Thank you for all that we've had today, for the things that we've been able to enjoy and worship, the fellowship together, and especially your word as you give us the truth, Lord. Go with us now from this place and help us to meditate on these things and to live for you and so that you get the glory in all that's done. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to take your hymnals, we're going to close with hymn number two, Love Divine, All Loves Excelling. Hymn number two, and when you found that,